0: Thank you so much, Deacon Brian, and thank you, Tongin and Singers and Musicians, for leading us. We welcome everyone to a new year. And so we begin by asking, what is it that we all need for a new year? And many of us would say, a new year is gonna be filled with new goals, new resolutions. But as we think about it, we are not very good as fallen human beings in keeping resolutions. And what we really need as we listened to a sermon last week is a new vision of life. And the new vision of life we saw last week from Revelation 22 is living life backwards. That to the finished work of Jesus, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, seated at God's right hand, this is the vision of the end. So the first light comes on. A vision of the end. A vision of where we are truly going, our destiny. The new heavens and the new earth a place in which there will be no more mourning, no more curse, no more death because Jesus is victorious and will be there unhindered in the presence in the throne of God and throne of the Lamb of God. There in that beautiful place, all who believe in Jesus will rise to eternal life, drinking, feeding, feasting in the presence of God, the tree of life, the water of life, truly paradise, Eden glorified. We also need a vision of Jesus' coming, that He's coming to take His bride, the Lord Jesus Christ's bride, to be with Him, to be with God our Father forever and ever, in a place there will be no more trace of Satan and no more trace of sin, the certainty of His coming. And that's the vision of our living for now. Now, the children of God, but not fully yet until we get glorified bodies when Jesus returns. And this is our duty, this is our ministry, this is our mission, to go to the ends of the earth, to share that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we must not forget, if we claim to believe in Jesus, not simply to share him, not not simply proclaim the gospel, but more and more so to become like him. Today we focus in our introductory sermon to Mark's gospel, an overview of Mark's gospel. This is what we're going to focus on. The Jesus, the authority I never knew, the family I never knew, and the Jesus I never knew. And what do we mean by this? And so for those of us who wear spectacles or glasses and a high percentage here in Singapore are myopic, right? maybe too much reading, too much study, could it be genetic? Not too sure. But ever so often when we go to the optometrist, optician, to get new glasses fitted out, you know the routine, they'll put in the lens and say, is this clearer? Which one's clearer? Which one's clearer? And in hearing the gospel and in knowing Jesus, it's a little bit like that. I thought, you thought, you really knew Jesus, who he was when you were a teenager. You gave your life to him. but As a teenager, before you got out to work, before you got married, before you hit the adult's world, your, your faith was slightly innocent, slightly naïve. As you go out there to work and you face the rough and tumble, you ask yourself, is Jesus really Lord of the workplace? Can I really apply Colossians chapter 3, verse 17? That whatever you do in word or deed, you do it as if serving the Lord. In, in my company, some of you may say, to serve the Lord, I mean, it's totally, the politics is killing us. And so you need new lenses all the time. And so here is our introduction an overview of Mark's Gospel just to paint the broad strokes and today to focus on authority, the family, the Jesus and the glory I never knew. The Gospel begins this way. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. There'll be a deeper explanation of this and a sermon next week. And so the titles I want to draw attention to are this. Good News, Proclaimed by Mark. As he writes, as he listens to this from Peter, and as he writes all that Peter the Apostle recounts about the person, the experiences, the anecdotes, the work, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Each of these titles are very important at the start of the Gospel. Jesus is God saves. is a term that began in the Old Testament. God delivers His people, delivers His people always from mortal danger. So I want to ask you, what's the most mortal danger you're facing? And you say globally, isn't it obvious? Isn't it a pandemic? Do you know that perhaps we hurt ourselves we endanger ourselves at home with domestic things. So we call it domestic violence or sometimes domestic accidents. You come out and the floor is wet in, in in your washroom or the towels. You step on it, you hit it, and one or two of our members did that. They slipped, hit the back of their heads, went into a coma, and passed away. Where are the dangers in life? The dangers in life are everywhere. It's part of our fallen world, it's part of our sinful nature. Jesus saves us from our sin. Christ is the promise of God's end time and eternal King. He comes at the end of God's promises, fulfilling God's promises, and as He fulfills God's promises as the Messiah, He will rise to rule as God's anointed King, not simply over Israel, but over all nations forever and ever, as we saw last week in Revelation. And then Son of God, is an indicator of Jesus' divinity. And more of each of them and all of them in the next uh, three months that we're going to study Mark's Gospel together. Good news. Now this is good news proclaimed, not written simply by Mark, but proclaimed by Jesus. And it could mean, in the Greek language, this is good news of God. It has come from God. It could also mean this is good news about God. Why good news about God? God has a problem. God has a problem. We have problems. God has no problems. He is God. He answers prayers. He hears prayers. Does God have a problem? It's the problem is how does a holy God save sinners without compromising His holiness, His justice, His wrath, His rightful wrath upon us? And so this is good news that the final solution and the full solution has come in the person of Jesus Christ, dying on the cross, absorbing God's wrath and pronouncing us, vindicating us, justifying us. So God's promise end time and eternal intervention is King Jesus. I want to just ask you to focus on that word there, Do you consider Jesus an interference in your life or a gracious intervention in your life? If you continue to live rebellious lives in your anger, in your envy, in your malice, in your slander, in your ambition, in your lust, in your immorality, then Jesus is an interference. But if you're calling out to God, help me, I can't control my anger. Help me, I can't do anything about this envy about my own brother or my own sister. I can't stop this malice against fellow people in church, in my own groups. Stop me, I want to be faithful to my husband, but I cannot. Because he doesn't speak a word and he doesn't meet my needs emotionally. At those points, Jesus is a gracious intervention not root interference in your life. When you call out to him as God who saves, God's end time and eternal king. And then he goes on in chapter 1. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out, out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Jesus' baptism is not a baptism for the forgiveness of sins, of which he had none. Jesus' baptism wasn't a baptism for the repentance of sin, of which he didn't have to repent of. He lived in life in total obedience to God. And so his baptism was a baptism of righteousness. To fulfil all righteousness in obedience to the Father's will, he would begin his ministry this way by being humbly baptised by John in the River Jordan. And the second marker is that this is a baptism of identification. There is nothing he would not do to obey the Father to save us. There is nothing he will not do to identify with us, to stand in our shoes and stand on our behalf, Jesus' baptism is a symbol of that. And then we have that Psalm 2, 7, Isaiah 42. This is what God speaks from heaven. Father, Son, Holy Spirit are here at the start of Jesus' public ministry, a significant event in salvation history. All three persons of God got involved in saving you. You want to remind yourself of that? Who got involved in saving you? Who got involved in getting your son or daughter into a school? Who got involved in trying to help your family through a financial crisis? Who got involved in getting you a job? Was it networking or was it marriage or a combination of both? Who got involved when you were in crisis? Father, Son and Holy Spirit got involved in saving us from Satan, from sin, and from death. Vitally important to realise that. And Psalm 2 verse 7 speaks about the Son of God. And Isaiah 42 verse 1 speaks about the servant of God. And to fully understand Jesus, that Jesus I must know and perhaps never knew, He's simultaneously the Son of God. And simultaneously in Isaiah the suffering servant of God who will go like a lamb to the slaughter. So all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is involved in saving us. And why is this important? This is vitally important because it shows the preciousness of you and me that we are not to live meaningless lives and purposeless lives and moment by moment doesn't count for anything. All of the Trinitarian God, the Godhead, got involved in loving you and me, in intervening in your life, and saving you from a life marred and scarred by rebellion and sin. That's the importance. At once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him, and there was a good question asked by our leaders, and once a week we train our leaders before the leaders go and lead the small groups, and we have 80-plus small groups in ARPC, and the question is being asked, what are these wild animals? When you're out in the wilderness, you face two very fatal dangers, either robbers who will come and plunder you, rob you, and kill you, and take all you possess as you travel on the desert roads, or you're going to be attacked by the wild animals. And these are not animals that you see behind bars in the enclosure at the zoo, and you and them, you and I point them out to our children and say, So cute the lion, so cute this thing. There are no so cute animals in the world. And so Jesus' authority in the first chapter is this it's promised in Scripture, it's announced by John the Baptist, it's affirmed by no one less, none less. Than God the Father Himself. Imagine having an endorsement from none other than God Himself, and is empowered by the Spirit of God. And you ask, for what? For what? Jesus is given, is given this authority to be responsible, to steward this authority for a final face-off with God's enemy. And hence, because he's God's enemy. Satan and his cohorts should be our enemies. So do you believe this? That our first introduction to Jesus is a man with utmost unmatched authority. No one has ever had this authority given by God. And Jesus' authority to call followers. Jesus said to them, follow me and I'll make make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed Jesus. If you are not convinced about the authority of Jesus to do this, in the first century, why don't you and I walk around here in Singapore in what we call our HDB, our housing hotlands, where 90% of our people live. And you walk up to a coffee shop and you say to a total stranger, drop everything, the wonton mee you're eating, the fish balls you're eating, the the chilli crab you're eating, and come follow me. That's just asking them to drop the chilli crab. You think they might follow you? There is no chance. Why don't you try that in school? You say to somebody in school among your classmates, come follow me, and they would need to send you for counselling. Why don't you say that in work, please? Here is a man of unparalleled authority, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the first mention of discipleship. And Mark's Gospel, the message is very simply, presenting Jesus fully as who he is, son of God, suffering servant of God, Presenting Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. The blessings and the cause of discipleship. And here is the first mention in the Gospel, the Greek word is there, ekeluteo. Basically is to fall in line under Jesus and follow as a disciple. So the first thing to take note if we are listening to this with some humility or more rightly, with complete humility as we listen to God. It's for you and me to understand Jesus has full authority over me. Jesus has full authority over my life, over my time, over my breath, over my relationships, over my school, over my work, over my past, over my present, over my future. Jesus has full authority over every aspect of me personally. Do you believe that? So discipleship means an undeserved grace relationship with Jesus Christ. Not because of anything that we did to merit this relationship, but because of everything Jesus did on our behalf. And what does that mean? This relationship, this grace relationship, this reciprocal relationship of love, Him loving us and Him and us, empowered by the Spirit, to love Him and worship Him in return. It might mean this mean, Marcus, that day by day, year by year, as a new year opens up, you keep confessing that Jesus Christ is your Saviour, He is your Lord, He is my all in all. And increasingly, from moment to moment, from day to day, you want to trust Him. As you wake up in the morning and get your children ready for school, as you send them off to school, you want to trust Him for the jobs that you are doing. You want to trust Him as you look after your aged parents. You want to surrender to Him, both the known and the unknown. And discipleship is not simply this undeserved grace relationship of love. The love of God given to us in Jesus is going to involve following Jesus It's it's going to involve becoming like Jesus, imitating Jesus, and we're going to find that in his passion predictions. For unless we deny ourselves, take up the cross, follow him. What does that mean? It's really the imitation of Jesus dying to self, taking up the cross and following him. This is Jesus' authority over you and I. So let's explore the obedience of this in our lives. Do you believe that Jesus has authority over you and I? Authority to ask you to leave your comfort zone. As he asks Andrew, as he asks Simon, as he asked the sons of Zebedee, do you think that Jesus has the authority to stop you in your life of comfort, in your life of convenience, in your life of security? Your self-made life of this is my comfort level. I can't live beyond, beneath this comfort level. This is my convenience level. If you ever inconvenience me in the day, my goodness, why is breakfast so late? Why is, why is lunch like that? Why is the traffic like this? If anybody dares to inconvenience you to the day, boy, your temper rises. You lose it very quickly. If anybody dares to threaten your security, you hit back with all the venom that you can, Jesus' authority over you and me. You think Jesus has authority to stop you in your sins? Your sins of anger? Your sins of malice? Your sins of lust? Your sins of pornography? Absolutely. The question is, do you acknowledge that authority? that the next time you turn on your phone and look at something, Jesus is telling you through his word, through your memory, through his spirit, stop this, leave this, stop this, leave this. Do you stop? Do you leave? Or do you take your time and think about it? You thought about it three years ago. You're still thinking about it today. That is not rightly acknowledging the authority of Jesus over your life and my life. It's to revalue valuable people and things. Yes, it's for the sons to leave their father in the boat with the hired hands and say, Dad, we're following him. Of course, that was a snapshot of something unique in the life and ministry of Jesus. But this uniqueness is then played out in the life of the church. When God calls, when Jesus calls Paul from a former hater of him and the church to number one proclaimer of him by being Gentiles, apostle to the Gentiles, he has to stop that and start this, to revalue all things and to start going fishing. If you don't go fishing for men and women's lives, If you don't go fishing for people's salvation, to get them right with God, what do you and I go fishing for? As you read the 16 chapters of this Gospel, in Herod and Pilate and the rulers, in the Pharisees and the teachers and the chief priests, what do you think the political masters and the religious masters go fishing for? They go fishing for pride. They go fishing for rank. They go fishing for Men's applause. And friends, when you and me profess to be Christians, and we as churches don't get this right, pre COVID, when you come and serve God, whether as a singer, a musician, a preacher, when you serve God in anything, a Bible study leader, when you serve God in all the 35 or 40 ministries that we have here in ARPC, you need to ask yourself, right, as an elder, as a deacon, as a pastor, as a leader, In God's eyes, you are firstly a child of God, you are a servant of the gospel. Are you fishing for applause? Are you fishing for recognition? What is it you're fishing for? As long as we don't get this fishing bit correct, you're still fishing for your own self-identity and security. You will never go fishing for the Lord Jesus. That's why our churches are anemic. From churches in the West to churches in the East, Anemic because we haven't even sorted out what is it we are going fishing for day by day, week by week. And so Jesus has every right to intervene into Joe's life, into Brian's life, into Tongin's life. I'm just naming the few people who are here. Jesus has every right to stop you in your tracks. If you are living a life that is displeasing to God, that no one knows but God knows, and God doesn't want you to carry on with this this displeasing life, pleasing to yourself, displeasing to God and faking it with others forever. To stop, Jesus has every right to intervene, to stop and to save me. And so I want to ask you, what's your response to Jesus' authority? This is perhaps the authority I never knew. The authority you never knew. So the next time you're dying to do your own thing, can you do the royal pause? And the royal pause is, who is king over this moment? And the answer is, surely it is Jesus who is king of this disappointment. He's king of this anger moment. He's king of this envious moment. He's king of this ambitious moment. He's king of this unfaithful moment. He's king. So, one of the couples that we counsel, she gave such a good line. And what was a good line? She knows that she has no right to go back to her emotions again and again. Her emotions of disappointment, her emotions of hurt, because sometimes we go there so often that becomes our God. Sure, there was disappointment. Sure, there was anger. But to go back and allow that to be a little G-idol that controls my life, I day by day, all my thoughts or my main emotions are just hurt and anger. It's not Jesus over my hurt and anger. The next time you're dying to do your own thing, do the royal pause. So in the marks of followership, immediately is a word that Mark uses 41 times in the Gospel. And it could be a time marker that it's so fast-paced, it's a literary marker, a writing device used by Mark. It could also be a spiritual divine marker. When it comes to Jesus ushering in the Kingdom of God in the first century, behold, the Kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus says at the start of his public ministry, the kingdom of God is breaking in to Israel. You won't recognise me as king. I'll be enthroned in the most radical way. I'll be enthroned to the cross. You won't recognise me. But immediately, as you listen to everything I do and see everything I, I do to signpost this, please believe. So no doubts of Jesus as God's king. No delay in entering God's kingdom. And no delay in going fishing for men. That this world is not our home, it is passing away. Everything here is fleeting. Most things here are faked. We are going in Revelation 22 to the new heavens and the new earth, the glorified Eden. This is Jesus' authority over me. And then you will also see Jesus' authority over Satan. And we read it earlier. And so, as he entered the synagogue, he confronts a demon-possessed man, and then he exorcises the demon from the man. The demons come out violently and shriek. And this is the first insight in chapter 1 of Mark's Gospel, that Satan and his allies, Satan and his demons are going to be defined against God and God's Messiah to the end. In other words, from chapter 1, the first salvo, the first warning is fired. And what's the first salvo? If Jesus has come, his authority is promised by Scripture, announced by John, endorsed by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Yes, unparalleled authority to face off with Satan and what, what should Satan rightly do? Back off. Bow the knee, say sorry. No. Satan will never do that. In the words of C.S. Lewis, I think, you show me a being under no authority, a being that has never obeyed any authority, and I will show you Satan. It's a very serious business to be anti-authoritarian in life. Everything within our fallen nature from the moment a young child learns, they learn to rebel against parents. You never need to teach children how to rebel against parents. You never need to teach children how to say no to parents' good instructions. You actually have to pray and persuade them to say yes and yes more willingly as you teach them wisdom from God's Word. Don't expect any grace. And here in Singapore, don't expect any allowance or oh, in Hawking to one chance when you're playing badminton or tennis or doing anything in life that Satan will give you a break Satan's exists Satan exists not to give you a break Satan exists to break you understand that well the spiritual battles that Jesus will encounter recorded for us in Mark's Gospel spiritual battles the cosmic world we just saw one demons exorcism, political world, the herods and the pilots of this world will, will finally come against him. And then he will face battles, spiritual battles and religious world, against the chief priests, the priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And finally he will face battles with the crowds. Initially, Jesus' popularity was the main response. In the end, it was rejection of him. And the disciples, whom he called, followed him. But at the foot of the cross, all abandoned him. vitally important to know that all this is part of spiritual warfare, which leads us to ask if Jesus has authority to call us, right? And Jesus has authority over Satan. How seriously are you taking spiritual warfare in your life personally? in your relationships, in your schooling, in your work, in your marriages, in your home. Do you ever wake and sleep thinking that there's a fierce spiritual battle going on, that Satan is not out to give you a break but to break you? But Jesus triumphs over Satan and you need to run to him for salvation and for shelter all the time. So not to be fearful of Satan, but to be mindful and prayerful of our dire need of Jesus. Would 2022 see you go on your knees to be more spiritually alert, to be more spiritually empowered in your battle against the evil one? We pray so. Now this is Jesus' authority over family, how far will you go for your family? I actually spoke this at a church camp, I don't know, 2015 or so, but you know we don't even remember sermons from last week so I'm sure you don't remember 2015. (laughs) And so by God's grace we went to Israel and uh, I highly commend all of us go. It's just a stirring spiritual experience to go to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. I remember having quiet time at the Sea of Galilee. One of Jesus's, our Lord Jesus' favourite places, you little wonder why it's so beautiful. Sea of Galilee is a lake, but it's so vast, it looks like a sea. And I stood there on a bitter cold winter morning, just communing with God in prayer and just enjoying and walking in his footsteps and just speaking to the Lord in my heart. And all of a sudden, there was commotion, there was noise and a group of people in their swimsuits were jumping into the cold, cold waters. I was out there with three, four layers all decked out, covered up with only my face, with the wind blowing bitterly cold. I said, who on earth are this? And they were going in there, well, a group of Afro-Americans, going in there to be baptised. I tell you what, I'm committed to church, but I'm not that committed. I thank God I'm not a Baptist. And so, there were, how far will you go for the spiritual family? And then I put that Ethiopian baptism, when, we, when I preached this years ago, the story of churches in Ethiopia. No church buildings, they just baptized them in the river. And one pastor, while he was baptized, baptizing, was attacked and eaten by a crocodile. Will I go that far for family? How far will you go for who or what you consider family? And so you know, Polo, our dog, has been part of our family. And uh, he's brought wonderful memories. He's given, us, given me right, over the last 11 and a half years, right, stable part of my life, my ministry, and uh, my illustrations. But suddenly last week, his health, turned downhill very quickly. He lost his appetite, he lost weight, he basically organ shut down and by Thursday morning, early in the morning at midnight, he passed on. So now our favourite pet dog is uh, gone. How far did we go for him? I should actually ask the question in reverse. How far would a dog go for its master? All those who keep dogs will know this. Dogs exist just simply to please their masters. They have no greater joy than just to to spend time with you, just to get praise from you, to please you. So two words that Polo used to like was ball, which means fetch the ball. And every time I say ball, he perks up. Here we go. I mean, the happiness comes, the perkiness comes. <sighs> Fetch, ball, ball. Second thing is, if he hears a sound, right? He's a good watchdog. He's not a guard dog as in a German Shepherd. He's small. He's a West Highland Terrier. It says so when he hears something out there, he barks, and I will just keep him going with the barking to scare off any possible intruders with, "Who's there? Who's there?" So, ball and who's there? Who's there is protecting us? Ball is for his play. In the last moments that we were there to say our farewells to him. I tried that, though he was so weak. I said, ball. And though he was so weak from not eating, he still perked up. And I said, who's there? He's still perked up. There's nothing he will not do simply to please us or to protect us. You know how far Jesus has come to make us a community. I want to highly commend to us that we Christians are not a community. That the church of Jesus Christ is the family of God. Purchased by the blood of Christ. And where do you find this? You find this in chapter 3. And in three weeks' time, when you dive into this deeply, then Jesus entered the house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his biological human family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he's out of his mind. A few things here need explanation, and here they are. Jesus' family, his mother, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, his two sisters, later on that will be shown, take charge of him. The word basically says they came to seize him because they think he had lost his rational mind. The mother is along because she thinks so. The brothers are here because they think he's out of his mind. And what could be out of his mind? He's no longer rational. Could he have tipped over? Gone a little bit, gone a little bit. And what could have tipped him over? Maybe his activities, his ministry, the exorcisms and the healings. Maybe his controversies with the Pharisees, the Herodians who plotted to kill him very early on, chapter three, verse six. Maybe his popularity with the crowds. And now, because he's tipped over mentally, He's no longer sound mentally, he's bringing shame to the family. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrive. Standing outside, they send someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus says, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asks. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here, I'm my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother, my sister. Notice he adds a new thing. My brother, my sister and my mother. No one treated women with more dignity and equality than our Lord Jesus Christ. As he now gives a new definition of God's kingdom, Purchased by his blood on the cross. Gathered because he is the risen Lord. Brothers, sisters, mother. This is a family I never knew. And he's going to call who to this kingdom? He's going to call men and women. He's going to call Jews and Gentiles to this kingdom. Because the first one to proclaim that Jesus, the Son of God, is a Gentile, he's a centurion. He's going to welcome adults and he says, don't stop the children from coming to me. This is Jesus and the new family. And so you enter this family the way Jesus is the head of the family. He obeyed God's will and he died for God's will. Not my will, but yours be, be done. And so could it be HBO that's hearing the good news that gets you into the kingdom. It's believing in God as king, as the heart of this good news and obeying by believing, by following Jesus as we saw in the calling of the first disciples. I want to ask of myself and ask of you, how's your hearing? Not of the bad news. There is no end to bad news that will make you... (laughs) fear life and fear men and make you see psychiatrists and make your life go bonkers. We're talking about hearing the good news that God loves you. He sent His Son for you and Jesus triumphs over Satan and sin. You no longer live under the wrath of God, under the guilt and the power of sin and the punishment of sin. You live free as a child of God, believing in Him as God's King. And then if He tells you to stop, to leave You stop and you leave. He tells you to start and you go. You start and you go. You are now a man and woman under Jesus' authority. That's H-B-O. Hearing, believing, obeying. The definition of God's family. So in their context, they needed to know as Israel. We're not children of God by birth. Abraham is our spiritual forefather. You're not... God's children by law-keeping, Moses gave us the law, we keep the law, we are children of God. You're not children of God by good works, by simply surrendering your life and trusting in Jesus wholeheartedly. And Galatians 3.28-29 will say this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, see that equality? So you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, as according to the promise. So what God promised Abraham all those years ago has finally come true in Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, if I believe in Jesus here, it unlocks Abraham's, God's promise to Abraham to me. Blessings, blessings, blessings through Christ and Christ alone. So Jesus' new definition of the family of God, not the community of God, the family of God, headed by Jesus. We are all equal in sin, but equal in our saviour and equal in our salvation. And the family of God is international. No more Jew, no more Greek, no more Gentile, no more slave, no more barbarian, no class barriers, no culture barriers. And then it's intergenerational between the ages. And God's new family is blind and borderless to all man made barriers of race, class, gender, and everything else. Do you believe that, brothers and sisters in Christ? That we as Christians should be at the forefront of identifying, working, and breaking down barriers? We should be. Barriers that divide us. I showed this at the church camp. This is not a post picture, it's not a made up picture, it's not a doctored picture, this is a picture of a dowry bride in India. There are 21 dowry deaths, this was in 2015, the conviction rate is only 34%, and 7,600 women died of dowry attacks in 2015 alone. The paying of dowry is a huge thing still in many places, in the villages and towns and cities of India. And when they are not able to, Brides may get attacked this way with acid attacks. And so there's the discrimination. What is this? Discrimination is the othering of others. Where you and me feel a fixed sense of superiority over another being. We feel good about our superiority, the other person feels bad. At the most personal level, if you don't get this right, The othering of others. That Satan and sin makes us masterful in raising barriers. If you have a superior attitude to your spouse, it's going to be a nightmare marriage. If you're going to have a superior attitude between your siblings, it's going to be a breakup family. There is no denying about it. The othering of others between races. Christ breaks barriers. We keep building barriers. Do you not know that this is the sin and the fault of the church of Jesus Christ through the ages? Very important that we get this right. Very important that we confess to this. And so I was just sent this book, Good News for Bruce Reeds. It's part of a series. This is book number three. And now it's called Colors of the Kingdom. The first two dealt with sexuality, I think and just written by local writers, different people contributing, and one of the lecturers in Bible College, I know him, spoke about his, what's his his chapter called? Confessions of Repentant Ex-Races. He grew up with parents in the neighbourhood telling him that one race of people was not to be trusted, lazy, etc., etc. And he carried them. And even after he got converted, he never really thought about Jesus' authority about race until he went for an international conference. And then he was bunked in, his roommate, <laughs> and same bed was a person from South Asia. Right? And I read, as he roomed in with him, was that they literally shared the same bed because the organisers messed up the rooming with this Indian participant. He snored like thunder because, his sleep, he, because of his sleep apnea. He turned on his video call with his family on full volume while he was brushing his teeth topless and even got me to say hi to them when I was trying to sleep. I was of course rather annoyed by the whole situation the awkward invasion of my personal space and privacy, right? And all his memories of the racism that he... And then he was confronted by Jesus and the good news at the international conference. Here am I, a pastor, here am I, a lecturer, and I've been ruined by God's sovereignty with someone that I have deep racism against. And that was when the penny dropped. And he confessed and repented. And then found the beauty of embracing a brother in Christ. You know, God has a way of messing up the rooming, don't you think? If you think you have made great progress when you haven't, he will room you to make sure that you deal with the things that stands a barrier to following Jesus. Another person wrote anonymously, Went to Bible college, I don't know which one, locally. A foreign student, and she tried to befriend the foreign student. And the foreign student was supported by a local church as part of field education, as we have supported 20, 30, 40 over the last 30 years that have been here, right? Supported them, field education, paid them a small allowance. As part of this church's support of this foreign student studying here, uh, extra duty every week was not just to turn up for service, but to mop the floors of the church every week. And she thought to herself, all the other field education students, Singaporean ones, have never been given this instruction that they had to mop the floor. But why? But she didn't dare to raise it with the leadership. You guess what happened to this overseas student? I read the line so that you can read it, hear it yourself. Two years of studies here, three years of study, two years of being assigned to this church. This overseas student had two difficult years. I witnessed the gradual but undeniable change from earnestness to cynicism, from an enthusiastic boy who was eager to come to Singapore to a hardened man who now declines even coming back to Singapore for a holiday, because he had such a bad experience of the Church of Jesus Christ who proclaims one thing and practices the other. Breaking down barriers, friends, is a very important thing as part of gospel living and becoming like Christ. And breaking down barriers takes effort. It really does. I remember lecturing in Bible College, Singapore Bible College in homiletics, And half the class were students from all of Asia, Southeast Asia. Do you know how hard it is to teach someone to preach? Firstly, they are grappling with learning English. Then they have to preach in English to even pass. So how do I mark and assess the sermons? Because sermons are assessed on thoughts and language. I had to listen to each one so carefully and say, the English is poor, the English is poor, the English is poor, but what's the theology? What's the content? What's the sincerity of this student? And each one made, took extra effort. I know she's trying to say this. I know if I spoke in Mongolian, I wouldn't have two words. I know I spoke in Tamil. I wouldn't go three words. I just went to our Mandarin ministry. My, my Chinese, I'm Chinese. My Mandarin is kaput. And then Pastor Yakhchou says Christmas Day baptism. And Pastor Joe was there doing the tag the team. I said, I'll, I'll come and baptise. And I had to learn the baptism vows in Mandarin. And I had to learn it by heart. Right? Again and again, the whole week, my memory verse was this thing. 我奉神父, 神赐, 神灵的名, Amen. I don't know whether I got it right. I baptise you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Just one line took me the whole week. You think it's easy? It takes divine commitment. Because Jesus Christ is Lord. I wanted to chicken out, you Now they had six baptisms. I said to your child, maybe I'll just say once. Uh, then, Amen for all the rest. But by God's grace, I said it six times. And I don't know whether it got better or got worse. <laughs> <laughs> the Church of Jesus Christ said, I lead together with you here, I Shepherd. We have tried to break down as many barriers as we can. Amen? As we start a new year, what is it you need? not just new goals, new resolutions. You need a new vision, a new vision of where we are going, our true home, where there is no more Jew or Greek, no more slave or free, no more men or women, no more young or old, no more barriers between us. We need a new vision of Jesus coming and leading us there. In between, we struggle. But today, as we begin with Mark's Gospel an introduction to Jesus, an overview of fresh, we see this is the authority I never knew. Authority to call me, call me to stop my life of self and to follow him. Authority to demolish Satan and to take part in the victory of Jesus. And the family I never knew, a beautiful family, where all races, all classes, and we mustn't ever if virtuality has done one thing, virtuality has given us equality in Christ. You don't zoom in and say, I'm from ALPC at Adam or ALPC at Bishan. And when this thing resumes and we go to ALPC at Adam and Bishan and Tengah, we will just have church camp together, our DG groups of ministers across the board. We don't find our security in geography. We don't find our security in location. We find our security, our identity and our mission in Christ. In all of those things, for in Christ. This is what it means to be the people of God. In Christ, in Christ alone, in Christ, in Christ alone, do we have this vision? Can we live with this authority? We are to go and baptise all the nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Christ, in Christ alone, will we be the one people, family of God? Gonna end our time in prayer and end our time singing the song. And then I'm gonna give you two things to be praying for. You wanna join me in prayer wherever you are? You may want to sit, you may want to stand. Whichever posture it is physically, it is to be a posture of humility. We bow before you, Lord of heaven and earth. We bow before you, Lord Jesus, your alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, before you every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. As we begin the new year, we pray and plead that we would long for nothing else but your vision of the end, and to live our life backwards from the glorious ending that we would have. That we are going to the new heavens and the new earth, the glorified Eden, a place where it's the tree of life and the water of life, and we would live with the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb of God, with no more Satan and no more sin and no more tears and no more death and no more curse. That is our true home. Give us a growing vision of that home, a growing conviction of that home. This world is not our home. And help us to say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, for the true bride of Jesus Christ cries out. We thank you for the Gospel of Mark. And today we thank you And we pray with humility that perhaps this is the authority I never knew that you have over my life. The things you tell me to stop, I must stop. The things you tell me to leave, I must leave. By your grace, for your service, for your glory. And is the family you invited us to. For some of us who think ourselves superior to others, for some of us think ourselves inferior to others, it's now time for us to find our true security in you. And we pray for confession, repentance, for any sort of racism, any sort of discrimination. And we will pray that we would indeed break down barriers and give you glory. In Christ In Christ alone, do we pray this, hope this, and experience this as a witness to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.